Thank you for joining us today. We'll continue our study of the Gospel of Matthew. We'll be discussing what Jesus says about what to expect from following him and sharing his message with others. So if you'll open your Bibles up to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 10, we'll begin our lesson. Why don't we begin in prayer? Father in heaven, I just thank you so much for this wonderful day and the rain that we've been having here in Texas. And thank you for the blessings you continue to give us. Thank you for this group. Also, thank you for the people who will be able to listen to this remotely. As we open your word and continue our study this morning of Matthew, I just ask that you open our hearts and minds and let the Holy Spirit work in our presence to point out things in our lives that need our focus and that we need to turn over to you, that we need to change. Father, there's things in our lives, each of us, that we sort of want to hang on to and I just ask that you just reveal those areas to us let us know the areas that we need to work on so that we can reflect you to others that we encounter we thank you for your word we thank you for this opportunity to study your word and I just ask that you speak through me through the lesson and speak through anyone who speaks up so we can all learn from one another during our discussion and we pray all this in your son Jesus name amen Okay, so we're continuing our study of Matthew. We're in Matthew chapter 10 today. And so I'm just going to kind of point out a couple of things before we get started. In the last couple of chapters, we really have been seeing Jesus demonstrate his authority through a lot of miracles, a lot of healings, things of that nature, other miracles. And so now what we're going to be getting into sort of a section here as we go through Matthew of where Jesus is really going to focus on his disciples. And actually, we're going to read today as he selects his 12 disciples slash apostles. The word apostle means to be sent out. So he's going to further train these 12 for ministry because he knows where he's headed. He's headed to the cross. So he's going to be training these 12 to then continue the teaching that he taught them And then we're all called to do the same, and we'll take a look at that as well. So before we begin in Matthew 10, hold your finger right here, and I just want to take us over to Luke 6 just very quickly. If you go over to Luke 6, verse 12, so that's just going over a couple of books to the right. Luke 6, verse 12, it says, It was at this time that he, being Jesus, went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. Verse 13, And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose twelve of them, whom he also named as apostles. So a couple of things that I just want to point out here. First of all, it was really important who Jesus was going to name to his team of twelve apostles. And so what did he do? He went and spent all night praying to God the Father. And I think that's a good reminder to us when we have big decisions to make. It might be something in business, might have something to do with our family or our jobs or whatever it is. It's really a good idea to follow this model that Jesus shows us. Go spend some time in prayer. He spent all night praying to the Father about who he is going to choose as his 12 apostles. It's also interesting that he didn't choose these people because of something they did. They didn't earn it. There wasn't something about them that earned their ability to be chosen as apostles. And again, the word apostle means to be sent out as a representative, as Jesus' representative. So 
These are really 12 very important people. So let's go back over to chapter 10, and we're going to see who these 12 are that Jesus selects. Chapter 10 in Matthew, verse 1. And having summoned his 12 disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. So what he's done is he's now given his disciples this authority that he had been showing himself in the way that he was healing and casting out demons. Now he's giving this type of power to his disciples for their ministry and delegating this authority to them so that that will then authenticate their authority and their message when they're teaching and speaking about Jesus. Jesus is basically saying, look, I'm going to delegate this authority to you. I'm going to entrust this to each of you so that you will act in the same way that I would if I were with you. You're my representatives now, and this is exactly what Jesus wants us to do and how he wants us to act. We now represent him. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, and he wants us to act as his representatives. And I'll just show you, we'll get there eventually, but hold your place here and just go over to Matthew 28. And we've looked at this many, many times, but I just want you to look at this because this is really important. And this is the last words that Matthew records in his gospel that we see Jesus saying. So let's start in 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is what Jesus has left us with. We're all called. This is what God's plan is for us to spread the gospel to others, to all the nations. So that's everyone that's Jew and Gentile. And he wants us to help build the kingdom. That's the plan. He worked with the 12, and the 12 would spread the word. And eventually the word came to us, and we've been called. And we're also now to be sent out, not as apostles, but certainly we're sent out now to go and share the gospel. So let's look at these 12 that Jesus selects. And it's very interesting that in all four gospel accounts, whenever the list of apostles, when they're all listed together, they're always in three groups of four. And the groups are always the same. The first group and the second group and the third group are always the same. The order within the group may change between gospels, but there's always this first group. And this first group is the group that was really the closest to Jesus. It's very clear, as we'll see, as we'll go on. But we even see here, it says in the next verse, he says, Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter. So Peter is first, not because he's better than anybody else, but Peter, it says, who's called Peter, which means rock, He's really the spokesman, as we see and will continue to see. He's the spokesman for the Twelve. He's sort of the leader of the Twelve. And then we see an Andrew, his brother. And what's interesting about Andrew is he actually met Jesus, and he was the first to actually be called 
and went and got his brother and others and said, hey, you need to come check this out. I, you know, we've found the Messiah. And what you see Andrew doing, he's really a behind the scenes kind of guy. And he is constantly bringing others to Jesus. But he's not one to want to be in the spotlight all the time. He's kind of a behind-the-scenes guy working all the time where Peter tends to be somebody who from time to time will kind of stick his foot in his mouth. He's kind of out there. But he also asks questions that are on everybody else's mind. He's kind of the spokesperson. And then we see in James, the son of Zebedee, and John his brother. So James and John are both brothers. John, of course, we know, wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote three letters, three epistles, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and he also wrote Revelation. And so Peter, James, and John are the closest to Jesus, and we'll see that as we go forward. There's times when just the three of them are with Jesus in some really important times that we'll see as we go forward. So that's the first group. And then the second group, so we see Philip and Bartholomew, and when you look at some of the other Gospels, sometimes Bartholomew is referred to as Nathaniel, so that can be a little confusing. Then we see Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector or tax gatherer, who is actually writing this Gospel that we're reading right now. Thomas, you'll recall, is sort of the skeptical one. He's called the Doubting Thomas. And then we see James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. And there's not a whole lot mentioned about Thaddeus in Scripture, but I do want to point out that Luke refers to him as Judas, son of James. And John refers to him as Judas, not Iscariot, meaning Judas Iscariot, who's in the fourth group, who will betray Jesus. So some of these names can get sort of confusing. It can also get confusing in that we've got two James we're getting ready to see who is an apostle. We see not only this James in verse 3, but we've got James in verse 2. So you've got those two James, and they're not brothers. And then Jesus has a half-brother named James who writes the epistle of James and actually becomes a leader in the church in Jerusalem. So these names can get sort of confusing. Judas Iscariot, and then we've got John referring to Thaddeus as Judas, not Iscariot. So that must have been another name of his. So I'm just pointing this out because it can get confusing. And so then we read in verse 4, Simon. So we have another Simon. This isn't Simon Peter. This is Simon the Zealot. And why does he get that name? He was originally a member of this Jewish group. They hated Rome. They were revolutionaries. And so that's where he gets that name from. And then, of course, we see Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. Judas will betray Jesus. The other thing I want to point out, just real quick, you'll see as they're listed, they're listed in groups of twos. And that may be because there's a variety of verses. When Jesus sends out his disciples, he sends them out in pairs. If you're taking notes, you can go take a look at Mark 6, verse 7. You can also go take a look at Luke 10, verse 1. He sends disciples out in pairs, which is a very good practice when you're doing missionary work. Every time I've done missionary work, we go out in pairs. There's just not to be any lone rangers and it's also good to have a ministry partner i know a lot of pastors have a ministry partner someone that 
you can bounce things off of and talk to about and there's just strength in numbers and so list them in pairs and that's probably how jesus sent them out so verse 5 these 12 jesus sent out after instructing them saying do not go the way of the gentiles and do not enter any city of the samaritans so what is that all about well Jesus wants to first give the Jewish people one more opportunity. He's still trying to reach the Jews first. As we read in chapter 28, he's then going to call all of us to go to all the nations. But he's first wanting to go and reach the Jews first because we see in verse 6, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's where he's wanting to go first. What is this about the Samaritans? Well, in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom of Israel was taken into exile by the Assyrians. And what happened was the Israelites, many of them, were taken captive. Some of the people in Samaria intermarried with the Assyrians. And they then became really despised as half-breeds by the Israelites. They're actually even viewed lower than the Gentiles. In fact, the Israelites hated Samarians so much If they were having to go somewhere and the shortest route would have been to cross through Samaria, they would actually go around it. I'm just giving you a little background why Samaritans are sometimes mentioned in the New Testament as people that are not viewed favorably by the Israelites. And we know that Jesus reaches out to Samaritans, but right now his focus is on trying to help and bring to faith the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So he's trained them. He's now going to send them out, and here's some of his instructions here. Verse 8, he says, Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. So he's saying, use this authority that I'm giving you. Go out and preach the word, but also do these types of miracles so that it will authenticate your authority and the ministry, that you are representative of mind. And you can see that this ministry that Jesus is calling them to, it is very clear and it's very focused. They know exactly what they're asked to do. And when God gives us directions, we should be obedient and do the same thing. When God knocks on our heart and says, go do this or go speak to this person. The end of that verse, he says, freely you received, freely give. So Jesus is saying, God did a work in you, changed your life, so you need to freely give and love others. Everything that we have is from God, and it's to be used to further his kingdom. We shouldn't think that we earned it. Everything we have, our forgiveness, our salvation, even the material things that we have, they were given to us by God. And he's also, I think, saying, give freely meaning when you're preaching the word here in other places where we learn about preachers and he's going to say here that you're entitled to be paid but he's saying don't use your ministry in a way to just make yourself rich we're going to see here he's going to say you've got to just depend on god so look what he says when you go out verse 9 do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your money or even two tunics sandals or a staff for the worker is worthy of his support. This takes tremendous faith and trust that God's going to provide. He's going to take care of you in your ministry. And he's saying, don't be worried about money. If you're trusting God, just trust that he's going to take care of you, that everything is going to be taken care of. Don't worry about it. God's in control here and he wants to work through you. 
Verse 11, and into whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it and abide there or stay there until you go away. So he's saying when you get to a city, find a person of faith, someone who's committed to the Lord, someone who's worthy to host, a representative of the king, King Jesus. And then he says, and as you enter the house, give it your greeting. And if the house is worthy, let your greeting of peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your greeting of peace return to you. And whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake off the dust of your feet. So that's a symbolic gesture Jesus is teaching here. Don't even let the dust touch your feet. And what he's saying is just don't spend undue time with people who persist in rejecting the gospel. Just move on. And I'll show you real quick, when we were studying Acts, we saw this actually happen. Look at Acts 13. Go over to the right, go through all the four Gospels, and then you'll get to Acts. And I want you to look at Acts 13, verse 49. And we see, And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. This is as they're following the instructions that Jesus gave them. Verse 50, But the Jews aroused the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city, and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas, see, they're in twos, and drove them out of their district. Verse 51, but they, meaning Paul and Barnabas, shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. So they did exactly what Jesus is teaching here. By the way, I didn't mention it. We saw when we were studying Acts, they actually chose Matthias to replace Judas Iscariot after Judas had betrayed Jesus and committed suicide. So that's where Matthias then became the 12th apostle. But then we also see that Paul had a very special calling to become an apostle. And you can look at that if you want to. We studied that. That's in 1 Corinthians 15, 8 through 10, where Paul talks about that. Paul is also called apostle, but a special calling because we saw in Acts the qualifications when they were selecting Matthias was you had to have been with Jesus from the beginning of his ministry and then also been a witness to his resurrection. And Matthias fit that qualification. And Paul had a special calling because he was not there throughout his ministry, but Jesus personally called Paul as an apostle. So I just wanted to clarify that for you. And there's others that are called apostles. They're not the 12, but they were sent out. And we've talked about that in other lessons. So I won't spend time with that right now. Okay, so let's see where I left off. Uh, back over in Matthew 10, verse 15. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city, the city that has rejected you. So he's basically saying, look, you go... You give them the chance to hear the message. You're my representative. If they don't respond and repent, then their rejection of you is rejection of me, and it's going to bring eternal judgment to these people. So Jesus is saying even today, anyone who we witness to who rejects the message of the gospel is going to face eternal judgment. So now as we move into kind of another section here in this chapter 10, verses 16 through 23, Jesus is going to prepare the apostles as well as us on what to expect, what type of reaction that we might expect from time to time through our ministries as we share the gospel with others. Verse 16, 
He says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as serpents, which means be someone who teaches the truth, be someone who says the right thing at the right time, know when to speak. And then he says, and be innocent as doves. So that means sharing the message with grace to others, have integrity, have honesty when we're sharing Jesus' gospel. And then verse 17, but beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. We saw Paul was scourged five times. That means he received 39 lashes. That's a scourging. You can go look at that. It's described in 2 Corinthians 11:24. What Jesus is saying is he's sending the apostles as well as us out into dangerous territory, into the world where Satan is alive and well and doing his work through others. But he wants us to have wisdom he wants us to have innocence. He wants us to come with gentleness to others. It's interesting that he describes us as sheep. Sheep are the most dependent, helpless, and stupid of all the animals. They have no natural defense against any danger or evil. And that's how he wants us to be. He wants us to be totally dependent on him and recognize that we are helpless. But we have tremendous power when we depend on Jesus. But he is telling us to be on our guard. He says that believers were going to be persecuted, and he mentions four areas. The first area is in religion. Courts were part of the synagogues then. The court system was part of the religious system. And so he's mentioned that already. And then in the following verses, Jesus is going to warn that believers are also going to be persecuted by the government, by members of our families, and by society in general. So let's pick back up with verse 18. And you shall even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and the Gentiles. So he's saying that we are going to be persecuted by the government. Remember, God created the government in order to preserve social order. But Satan uses government even to this day to do his works. We see that today. Look what's happened to schools. God cannot even be mentioned in schools so we shouldn't be surprised if even in the United States we see the government eventually inhibiting even further Christians from being able to freely practice their faith. Like I say, we've already seen that happen in our schools, which I think is why the generations that we see coming along now, they aren't exposed unless they go to a school at one of their churches or do something, go to a youth group or something outside of school. They're not even exposed to any teachings or told about God, which is why they grow up so messed up. Not that we aren't also messed up. Verse 19, but when they deliver you up, do not become anxious about how or what you will speak, for it shall be given you in that hour what you are to speak. So remember, at that time, the New Testament had not even been written. So the Holy Spirit, Jesus is saying, will even put in your heads the knowledge that they had not even yet learned that we now have in the Scripture. Today, now that we have the Scripture, when we spend time in the Scripture and learn it, the Holy Spirit helps us remember what we've learned. There's not new stuff being added to the Scripture today. 
However, I will point out that there are some denominations and religious groups that actually claim that, yeah, oh, well, we had some further prophecy from this guy or from this other book that we read alongside of the Bible. We even have some denominations who say there's people within our religious group that actually speak for God and can modify things in the Bible, that it's equal to God's Word in the Bible. None of that, by the way, is scriptural. You're not going to find that in the scripture. And so what Jesus always says is when somebody's trying to tell you there's some new revelation or new whatever, weigh it against what's already written that was inspired by God. But this is encouraging because what Jesus is saying is when we do have the opportunity to speak and when our heart is nudged by the Holy Spirit to speak up, the Holy Spirit's going to give us the words to use. It's not us anyway. So that really takes the pressure off of us. And so here's some reactions that Jesus is warning us about when we are out sharing the gospel and witnessing to others. Verse 21, And brother will deliver up brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. We need to understand that even family members will reject our message from time to time because you're teaching the truth from Jesus. I got to tell you, I even see this in my own family, and I'm not throwing any of my family under the bus. I was raised Catholic, and we were taught various things, and I bring this up from time to time. I point out what is stated in Scripture and how from time to time it does conflict with what I was taught growing up as a Catholic. And I've had family members from time to time who listen to these podcasts or will be in a discussion and they'll say, Larry, you really need to cool it on the stuff that you're saying that is so different than what we were taught. And I point out, look, I didn't write the Bible. I have studied the Bible. And I encourage you to study the Bible. And if what you're reading in the Bible is different than what you were taught, maybe what you were taught is in conflict with actually the words in the Bible. So I'm going to leave that between you and the Lord. That's for you to sort out. I'm only trying to help you understand what's written in the Bible. And if that is contrary to what you were taught, I encourage you to spend some time in the Word itself rather than being focused on what you were taught. Because it's just like the Pharisees, they had lots of traditions that were handed down and they all thought that was the truth. And Jesus rails on them, telling them their traditions are wrong. Get back to the Word. Spend some time in the Bible and see what God says rather than what you were taught. And I don't mean to be throwing anybody under the bus. I'm not doing it to be judgmental. I'm just encouraging you, no matter what your denomination is, no matter what you were taught, spend some time in the Word and see what the Word says and see what God puts on your heart from His own Word as opposed to just taking blindly what you've been taught. Spend some time in the Word and see what it says. I'll leave that there. Certainly, I have felt a little bit of heat from family, and so I count that as, wow, thank you, God, for telling me I must be on the right track for whatever that's worth. Verse 22, And you will be hated by all on account of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. So let me touch on this a little bit. First of all, I think Matthew's using a little bit of hyperbole here by saying you'll be hated by all. You're not going to be hated by believers. 
But Jesus is making it clear here as he says this, that you're going to have pressure from time to time. If you're not feeling some heat, maybe you're not out there enough with your faith. Maybe Satan doesn't even view you as a threat. You ought to feel some persecution and some pushback from time to time. And here he's just really talking about society in general from our culture. And you also see that he says, he who has endured to the end will be saved. And so endurance doesn't produce our salvation. And let me clarify that. It's our endurance that is evidence of our salvation by God working through us to help us endure. So when we endure to the end, it's evidence that we have been saved. Verse 23, but whenever they persecute you in this city, flee to the next. So he's saying, don't seek out to be persecuted and risk death. Just move on. He says, for truly I say to you, you shall not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. This second part I've read from a lot of commentators. This is really difficult for commentators to interpret. I'd say generally, while there are lots of different views, one view is what Jesus is talking about here is that while this is difficult to interpret, it could mean that he's talking about when Israel finally rejects Jesus and he's crucified, that that's what he's talking about, that that rejection is going to be followed up by the destruction of the temple in AD 70 and that type of thing. You can read about that if you want to. Go over to Matthew 23. We'll get there eventually. It begins in verse 31 through 39. That may be what he's talking about. Or he could be talking about the final judgment with Jesus and the great white throne, which we've talked about before. If you're taking notes, you can go take a look at that in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. I won't spend any more time on that, but I will say commentators have a hard time with the interpretation of that last part of verse 23. So now as we move into verse 24 through the end here, Jesus is going to describe some of the cost of being in ministry, of sharing the gospel, of being a follower of Jesus Christ. Verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. So Jesus is saying, look, don't expect to be respected. He's saying, I'm the teacher and I'm not respected. A disciple of Jesus isn't going to be treated any better than Jesus was. And so we're all going to be persecuted from time to time. And as I said, if you've never felt any persecution or pushback, you might want to just pray a little bit more about how the Holy Spirit can help you be a little bit more visible in your faith and sharing the gospel with others. Verse 25, it is enough for the disciple that he become as his teacher and the slave of his master. So as a true disciple, we should emulate our teacher is what he's saying here. And he says that if they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, we saw this last week over to Matthew 9 verse 34, Beelzebul, it means Satan. It actually means Lord of the flies. But we saw in chapter 9 verse 34, it says the Pharisees were saying Jesus cast out demons by the ruler of the demons. So they were trying to say that Jesus' power just comes from Satan. So now he's saying, look, if they're calling me Satan or telling me I'm an instrument of Satan, how much more the members of his household? So he's really saying just rejoice when you're persecuted. As we read when we were in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 10, where it talks about rejoicing when we're persecuted. 
just know that when we are persecuted, we're going to receive great reward in heaven. And it's also a way that it confirms our salvation. And I've gotten to where, instead of becoming defensive, when I do feel that pushback or hear people saying various things that might be a little derogatory, it's like, hey, that's awesome. That's confirming that I truly have been saved. Verse 26, therefore, do not fear. Jesus says this a lot to us. Don't fear. Don't be afraid. Therefore, do not fear them. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. So even if we're falsely accused, don't worry about it. Don't fight against it. It's later going to be revealed. It's going to be brought to light. Be encouraged because truth is ultimately going to prevail. Any injustice towards us is going to be uncovered. Paul talks about this a lot in Romans 8, if you want to go read that a little bit. Verse 27, what I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. So he's saying when the Holy Spirit puts that little nudge in your heart, he will give you the words in your ear. We need to speak up. We need to be in tune with the Holy Spirit. And when we're told to say something, we need to say something. And we shouldn't be fearful. We should teach truth from what God has revealed to us through the Holy Spirit and through His Word and what we've read in His Word and through these Bible studies. We shouldn't seek love from the world. We're not part of the world. And so from time to time, we're going to have to confront in love the world and our culture. He says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul but rather fear him, meaning God, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And so he's saying, don't fear a little bodily pain. We shouldn't even fear death. Even if we're persecuted to the extent that we saw Paul was, it's a little pain, but even in prison and through all of his torture and what happened to him, he was always joyous because he knew he was gonna be rewarded in heaven and he knew that he had his salvation. I'll just have you mark this down. If you want a, another verse to just go look at, you can do this on your own time, is go look at 1 John 2, 15 through 16. So verse 29, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? So a cent, that's the smallest copper coin, even the insignificance of a small bird such as a sparrow, which was one of the smallest birds used in sacrifices. He's saying even God the Father knows where every one of those sparrows are. In verse 30, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So God cares about us so much that he even knows the number of hairs on our head. And some of you may be like me. I don't have as many of those now for him to have to keep up with. Verse 31, therefore, do not fear. You are of more value than many sparrows. Everyone, therefore, who confesses me before men, I will confess him before my father who is in heaven. Confessing Jesus is more than just recognition. It's more than just saying, yeah, I believe there's a God. In fact, look over in James 2.19. We've looked at this before. Go all the way towards the back. When you get to Revelation, then start coming back to the left, and you'll go through John and Peter, and you'll get to James. In James 2.19, it says, You believe that God is one, meaning you believe that there's a God. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. 
So even the demons believe that God exists. Confessing Jesus as Lord is much more than just believing that there's a God or that God exists. It means affirming that He is our Savior, that we're lost without Him. It's identifying with Him. It's agreeing and acknowledging and accepting Him as our Lord and Savior. Just as we've looked so many times in Romans 10, 9 and 10, which I tell you I use a lot when I'm sharing the gospel with others, which says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So faith, it's all about our faith, and we've got to confess Jesus as Lord. He says in verse 33, But whoever shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword, meaning hostility. So he's saying that we've got to give our heart to Jesus. It's about repenting, changing our way, and placing our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And we're going to have hostility because we're now representing Jesus Christ, who there was tremendous hostility. I mean, they killed him. Terrible death that he endured. Verse 35, For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. He's quoting from Micah 7, 6 here. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. So we're even going to have family members who are going to not like what we have to say from time to time. Now, let me be clear. Jesus is not saying that it's his mission and his intention to divide our families. But he is saying that we're to have loyalty to Jesus first. And because of that, there are, from time to time, in some of our families, there are going to be family members who don't like what we have to say. And we may even be hated for what we have to say. So don't be surprised. Verse 37, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So Jesus has to be the priority. Verse 38, and he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. So the cross means willing to give our life, willing to give everything to follow Christ. It means giving up our desires to be something in this world. Instead, it means that we're going to live in a way to point others to Christ in everything that we do that we're willing to sacrifice and give whatever we need to do, we need to give that to Christ. Verse 39, He who has found his life shall lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. So losing life means it's a willingness to give up our possessions or whatever things that we enjoy, even relationships, if they distract us from our ability to follow Jesus. Verse 40, he who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me, meaning the Father. So Jesus was sent by the Father, and the twelve apostles are sent by Jesus. They're sent out, and so they have the authority from the Father. And we likewise, as followers of Jesus, we are representatives of Jesus, and when we follow Jesus, we're following the instructions of the Father. Verse 41 he who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. 
And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. So we're going to receive blessings when we share the blessings that God has given us. When we share those with others, we're going to receive blessings. And when we help prophets or missionaries, when we help our churches, our pastors, when we help others in the building of the kingdom, we also will participate in their reward because we're helping them by sharing maybe some of the material things that we've been given by God through God's blessings. Verse 42, And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. So this illustration, think of a cup of cold water. That's probably the smallest thing that anyone could give because it costs you nothing. Even a poor person in most situations can go and get a cup of water out of a faucet or somewhere for somebody. I realize there's some parts of the world that don't have running water. I recognize that. But the illustration is what Jesus is saying is the smallest, even the smallest act of service that we do to others will be rewarded if we do it in the way to glorify God or help build God's kingdom as opposed to doing it to glorify ourselves. So he's really saying here, anyone who treats a prophet or any believer or disciple of Jesus, any follower of Jesus, as they would treat Jesus, they will receive a reward. And it's an eternal reward. All our eternal rewards are going to be determined by how we serve Jesus in this life. How we serve him in this life is going to determine how we will then be able to serve him in eternity. And we spent a lot of time talking about that. Go take a look again at 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 15. It talks about rewards and he who built his house with straw and hay and stubble. He who built it with materials that would withstand the fire. We're all going to go through the fire. Even believers will pass through a fire in our good things that we've done through the ability of allowing God to work through us. Those will make it through the fire and we'll have something to present to Jesus. It says those who didn't do what Jesus wanted us to do and we built our lives with nothing, with hay and stubble, those works aren't going to make it through the fire. But it says we'll still be saved. We'll just go through the fire and we're going to be left with nothing. So you don't want to live your life in that way. Just to summarize some of the key takeaways for me from what we've read today, we should expect persecution and hostility, even from our family members from time to time. So don't be surprised when you are persecuted or feel hostility. And when you do, actually rejoice because that's confirmation. That should be confirmation to you of your salvation. We shouldn't even fear bodily harm. I'd severely doubt that we'll ever face the physical persecution like Paul and others did or death. But God is going to guard us. He says he's going to guard our soul even for eternity. We should continue to look for ways to share the gospel and to aid others who are doing that because we'll share in their reward. And certainly we should know that Jesus, we should confess him as our Lord and Savior and know that he's an advocate for us and the Holy Spirit is right there with us whenever we're given the opportunity to share the gospel with others. So with that, let me open it up for discussion. I'd be curious if you could share, I mean, offline, it's my home church. The sermon last weekend was on partly on Andrew, and I would just be curious if there's any recommended reading uh, outside the Bible to get some more synopsis and biographies of the disciples and kind of 
what we know from other historical things about where they took their ministries after the Great Commission. There are historical, non-biblical, but historical things about most of the disciples. First place I always go look when I just want some general information. It's a really great resource, even when you have any type of questions. If you're discipling somebody and they've got a question you don't know the answer to, a really great resource is to go to gotquestions.org, gotquestions.org. And I'll bet you there's something in there. That'd be a good place. And that, it usually also gives some resources, other resources that you can turn to. But I'll be happy to try to give you some other ones offline. All right, thank you. Hey, Larry. So when he said, do not go among the Gentiles or any enter any town of the Samaritans, again, what you said earlier, it was Christ's idea to focus on the Jews. But I guess part of the plan was Paul was going to be the one to come in and preach to the Gentiles. Is that a fair statement? That's a fair statement, although Peter was the very first to do so. But Jesus, he was giving the Jews one last opportunity here. He knows things are starting to get hostile, but he doesn't want to give up on them. And remember, we use Jews and the nation of Israel in very broad categories. Don't forget, all these apostles were Jews. Okay, so there were Jews who came to faith. The first believers were Jews. The nation of Israel, that's different. That's the religious leaders and all the people who followed the religious leaders. But there were definitely Jewish people who came to faith and were part of the very beginnings of the church. So he's wanting to focus at this point in the ministry first on the Jews. And you even saw Paul. He was Jewish, and typically his approach when he'd go to a new town and his journeys that we studied for, gosh, we studied for months as we went through the book of Acts, he usually first went to the Jewish people before he went to the Gentiles when he'd show up in a new area. Okay, thanks. Appreciate it. Larry, when did Jesus' half-brother enter the ministry? I can't tell you precisely. It's my belief it was after his resurrection because there's verses that we'll come to here eventually that you'll actually see that his family members did not believe up until, I don't want to speak for Mary, his mother, but there's verses that in his ministry, his family members, it says they did not believe. So I think it probably all became clear to James, his half-brother, following the resurrection. And then James, his half-brother, became a leader in the church in Jerusalem. Good question. Thank you. Larry, one thing that strikes me is if, as we encounter people out there and we share our faith, that even if some people do kind of roll their eyes or are not interested or reject us or whatever, the, they clearly are not that interested. I tend to always think of that as just another mustard seed that we're planting. And also, it's a reminder to me that, that people are watching. They're watching our behavior and watching how we conduct ourselves. And I don't necessarily take it as rejection as I do. It's still an offer for dialogue. And if they're seekers, then you're receptive to talking and at least sharing your faith with them or our faith with them. That's just a comment. That's so important. And when I've been with on mission trips with people who are going for the first time, the first time they share the gospel and it's not received well on the other side, you can just see they get so frustrated. And I quickly tell them, look, don't be frustrated at all. You just planted seeds 
And that's what God wants us to do. There should be no pressure on you at all for someone to come to faith because that's not our job. I have never converted anybody, ever. Have there been lots of people who have come to faith because I've shared the gospel with them? Absolutely. That's the Holy Spirit working. That is not me, which takes all the pressure off of me. I got no pressure at all. All I got to do is just open my mouth and listen, use the words that the Holy Spirit gives me. The result is up to the Holy Spirit. It's not me at all. And you've heard me say this before. You know, sometimes I'm the starting pitcher, which means I'm just planting the seeds and the game still has a lot left to play. And sometimes I'm the closer and somebody else is, you know, the seeds were planted decades ago. And I happen to be the one to just come along and get to be the closer and close it out and share the joy in seeing them come to faith. So you never know what role the Holy Spirit has you playing in, but just the fact that you're open in your mouth, you're in the game and you're being used in a positive way and take joy in that. Wow, you know, the Holy Spirit worked through me today to at least say something. How cool is that? I don't know where it's going to go from there and then continue to pray for them. Thank you for joining us today. I'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to me at LarryO'Donnell.com. You can also sign up for my weekly blog and podcast by sending a text message to 56316 and then type Larry in the text box and hit send. I hope you will join us next time as we continue our study.